0: Let's jump into the book of Malachi. We're finishing our reclaim season. We've done 12 books of the minor prophets. All of them wrap up and they culminate, the entire Old Testament culminates in the book of Malachi. It's the last book written, 4,000 years of history, 1,000 years of writing, 400 years of silence in between, and then a virgin gets pregnant and gives birth to the Savior of the world, okay? So this is the closing of the Old Testament, and ironically enough, Malachi's name means messenger, and he finishes in Malachi chapter four, letting us know that a messenger is coming to tell us about the Savior of the world. So I think if there were ever a time to... Okay, so think about this. Malachi ends the Old Testament prophetically and he ends it in such a way that he is looking back on the history of Israel. So last week we did Zechariah. Zechariah is pointing forward. So Zechariah comes along and he says this all ends with Jesus' return and Jesus' second coming. Malachi comes and he says this is ending by way of the disasters that you have created in the past. Both of them point us towards the future. One by looking to the future, and the other by looking to the past. So today we're taking a look at our past to see our desperate need for Jesus in the future, okay? Book of Malachi contains five questions. Here are the five questions that I want you to hold on to that will wrap the whole book around, okay? Question number one, Malachi 1:2. The people ask God, How have you loved us? Bold question, right? Question two, Malachi 1, 6 through 10, they say, how have we shown contempt for your name? That was what I was just talking about. He says, you've shown contempt for my name. You haven't honored me as Father. You haven't honored me as God. And they say, how on earth have we done that? Question number three, Malachi 2, 17, how have we wearied you? God literally says to them, you have worn me out. Parents, after a long weekend, right, you have worn me out out one more time. Don't say another word. Better go to your room and if you don't quit, you have warned me out. God says the same thing to the children of Israel. Question number four, how can we return when we haven't gone away? That's a bold one. What do you mean return to you and you will return to us? How are we going to return to you and we haven't gone anywhere? We're standing right here, God. And then question number five, what have we said about you? All of these questions point to our desperate need for salvation. All of them looking over the book of Malachi. Malachi is saying, I'm going to wrap up the Old Testament by looking back so that I can point you forward. And by looking back, here is the picture you're going to get. A desperation for salvation. It breaks up into three parts. Number one, sacrifice. Number two, covenant. Number three, faithfulness. Now listen to me. The Bible goes through rhythms. There are rhythms that you can find if you study the narrative of scripture. There are multiple rhythms. One rhythm that you can find is sacrifice, covenant, faithfulness. 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 Sacrifice, covenant Faithfulness, sacrifice, covenant, faithfulness. Thank you, 11. Sacrifice, covenant, faithfulness. Abraham was what? Sacrifice. God says, wait. He makes a covenant with Abraham and then he invites him into a relationship of faithfulness, right? What does God do with the children of Israel? He does a, he, make, he makes a great move on their behalf, frees them from slavery, they build an altar to him, they offer him a sacrifice, he makes them a covenant, and he invites them into faithfulness. What do we see with Jesus? Jesus is a sacrifice for us, he invites us into covenant, and calls us to a life of faithfulness. Sacrifice, covenant, faithfulness. Catch the rhythm and see the rhythm. That's what Malachi is breaking down for us now, okay? He is saying the three things that you could not do. One, make appropriate sacrifices for me. Two, live in covenant with me. And three, be faithful. Those are the three challenges. You want to summarize the history of Israel? They can't get sacrifices right. They never live in covenant. They always break it. And when it comes to faithfulness, they're always running away from God. Here is the good news. If you've come in here today and you're saying of yourself, I feel like I try to offer God something and every time I do, I just, I don't get it right or I don't have the right words or I'm not the right person or I've been living the right way. I don't have appropriate sacrifices to him. I've got good news for you. He looks to the past and he heals that in our future. If you're in here saying, I know I'm supposed to live in covenant with God but I can't quit doing the things I don't wanna do and the things I don't wanna do, I keep doing. I've got good news for you. You're welcome back into covenant with God. If you're in here and you're saying, all I want to do is be faithful and every time I seem to mess it up with faithfulness and I feel like I'm distant from God. In other words, if you feel like a child of Israel, over these last 12 messages, if you have related more with the children of Israel than anything else, Malachi takes all of that and here's what he says. I have your solution. I have your solution. And it's packaged in the form of one person that is going to be a sacrifice, that is going to make a covenant with you, and he's gonna lead you into faithfulness. Got it, we with me? All right, before we do, um, we'll see how this lands. 11 wasn't vibing, but I'll tell you, I grew up in the era of late 80s, early 90s action movies. Okay? There was no better era for action movies that you have the Die Hards, you have the Bond movies before it was Daniel Craig, it was Pierce Brosnan and Sean Connery. You had like the real men who were Bond, right? Like you had all of these, but I'll tell you, the greatest action movie when I was a kid, I had them on VHS because DVDs didn't exist, and I would rewind and fast forward. I kept it was so cool. Was is there any? better action figure in the world than John Rambo? John Rambo, right? I knew I'd get Zach Pulling in on that one. John Rambo is the man, look at him. No man, no law, no war can stop him. It's John Rambo. So for me, um, Rambo Part 1, first Blood Part 1, it was pretty weak, right? I mean, it was just Rambo shows up. He's a Green Beret Vietnam vet. He's in Washington hitchhiking. He gets arrested. Once he gets arrested, he gets taken to jail. They mistreat him in jail. He gets PTSD, breaks away, runs away to the woods. They try to find him, and he kills them all, right? I mean, that's, that's Rambo First Blood. Rambo Part 2 is the best one that was done, Okay. That one is the one where they come to Rambo, they find him in a labor prison, right? And Colonel Troutman comes to him and he says, hey, I've got a deal for you. I can get you out of this prison and clear your record. All I need you to do is go to Vietnam and take pictures of a refugee camp. And Rambo's like, I'm done with the days of combat. I've totally let go of that. And they're like, fine, that's fine all you have to do is take pictures. So they pair him with this Vietnamese liaison named Co, and they send Rambo to Vietnam. And when he arrives in Vietnam, he's going around, and he finds this refugee camp, and he takes pictures of it. And as he's taking pictures, he sees an American soldier, POW, and he's, there, there's something in John Rambo. I mean, you saw the picture, right? Like, Rambo can't let it go. So he goes, he breaks free this POW. He and Co, this, this Vietnamese liaison he has that he's getting sweet on, right? They go to the extraction point, and when they get to the extraction point, Troutman's in the helicopter, and they come down, and they're like, oh, he's got a POW, he's got a POW, and the the, the bureaucrat in Washington was like, abort the mission, abort the mission. He's got a POW, we're not getting involved in action, and they leave Rambo for dead. That's when Rambo becomes an ultimate killing machine. Right, so Rambo gets on a boat, and as he's on a boat, trust, I promise you I'm going somewhere with this, Rambo gets on a boat, and I feel like all the college kids, have any of you guys seen Rambo? Any of you? Any of you? Mario won. My goodness, we have lost a generation. We've lost a generation. Rambo gets on this boat, and as he's on this boat with Ko, he leans in, he gives Ko a kiss, and right when he does, this Vietnamese warship flies around, shoots Ko, and, and fires bullets everywhere, and Rambo turns into a machine. Armed with simply a knife and a bow and arrow, He overthrows the Soviet, Vietnamese, and United States armies, all three. I'm talking slaughters thousands of soldiers, hijacks a helicopter mid-air, blows up a warship, lands it at American base, goes in, finds the bureaucrat, and handles his business, and the whole thing culminates. And if you read the, the plot summary online, if you read the synopsis of it, it ends by saying this, when everything else falls apart, john rambo takes matters into his own hands when everything else falls apart john rambo is the only one who can take matters into his own hands now i'm realizing that's probably not a great illustration to god in the book of malachi but if we were to make the connection here's what malachi is about malachi is about god taking the history of israel into his own hands and saying, you guys could do nothing about this, and it required me to step into a space where you could not get it right, and I'm going to take all of this, and I'm going to turn it into a new relationship for you in the form of sacrifice, covenant, faithfulness. Thank you. Sacrifice, covenant, faithfulness. Okay, here we go. Number one, sacrifice, Here's the question they ask in Malachi 1, 6 through 10. How have we shown contempt for your name? I'll read it to you. Malachi 1, 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? That's a fair question, right? Here's what he's saying. If I truly am master, why don't you celebrate me like it? Let's, let's contextualize it for a moment, right? What he's saying is this. If, if I truly am master and you're here to worship me, why are you more concerned with your friends than your relationship with me? If I'm master and you have come to give me praise, why do you cheer louder at sporting events than you do for me? If I'm master and you've come to honor me, why do you care more about your pets than you do me? Why would you search the world for your lost toto and you don't care about me? Like, if I am master, why don't I get what I deserve? That's the question he asks them, right? It is your priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask. Here's the question. How have we shown contempt for your name? He tells them in verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar, But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame and diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept the offering from your hands. What he said to them is this you cannot give me appropriate sacrifices the sacrifices you give me are when you have time it's when you wake up in time it's when you have enough time to worship me. It's when you have enough time to do daily devotions. It's when you're getting more workouts in a week than you are daily devotions and reading time. It's when you're spending more time worried about what other people think about you than what I think about you. That's, that's the challenge he's issuing. He's saying, if I'm him, why am I not getting the honor, do my name? Now listen to Hebrews 10, one through 10. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming. Not the, rea- not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise would they have stopped being offered. For the worshipers who have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt the guilt of their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here's the kicker, verse five. Therefore, when Christ came, that's the change. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were pleased. And then he summarizes it, jump down to verse 10. He says, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here's where it all comes together. Malachi points us to a God who is constantly asking his people to make the right sacrifice. The New Testament points us to a God who made the greatest sacrifice of all time for us. Do you see the difference? Malachi is saying, Malachi is pointing us to a God who's saying, would you please get the sacrifice right? The New Testament points us to a God who is saying, I will do it for you. Here you go. I will do what you cannot do for yourselves, and I will make the sacrifice right. That's why if you're in here today and you feel like you have nothing to offer God, I've got good news for you. God's already made the offer for you. He's already done it for you. He's already paid the price for you. He's already sent the sacrifice for you so that you can enter into fellowship with him again. I will admit, I am uh, a hustler on Facebook Marketplace. I am. Like, I'll just tell you, uh, there are some people that that post stuff on there and they're like, you know, my loss, your gain, I bought it new, save the tax. I'm like, no, bro. I don't get on Facebook Marketplace to save 50 bucks. I get on Facebook Marketplace to save 50%, right? Like, I'm on there hustling. And I, I'm that guy, so this guy had something on there that I wanted. It was three, He had it listed for 300 bucks. And in his description, he put, or best offer. Drives me nuts. They don't even know what that means. Like, if you post something and say, or best offer, know, know what you're saying, right? So I sent him a message, and I said, hey, I'm I'm this guy, 150 cash, pick up today. (laughs) He messages me back, no way. I'm like, so at this point, I ask him, look, I'm on a burner count on there, you're not gonna find me, it's not my name, I have pictures of my family on there, so I'm like, okay, I'll take a liberty here. And I'm like, what's your best offer? He messages me back 100 bucks. I'm like, I messaged him back and I said, I offered 150, that's your best offer. Will you take your best offer? He messages me back 250. I'm like, no. So I sent him this message, <laughs> and I said, um, Hey, let me explain to you how or best offer works. <laughs> if you say or best offer, I'm your best offer by 50 bucks. That's what the offer you should take. If you're saying the price you'll take is 250, that's not or best offer. That is just stating your minimum price. <laughs> he sent me back the middle finger emoji. <laughs> I don't think he was vibing it, right? But I I shot my shot, right? But here's where I think our challenge comes. I feel like we come to God feeling like he has a price set and we're not able to attain that price. Therefore, we can't be in relationship with him. Malachi is saying that's what you were. The New Testament is saying the price has been paid. Malachi is saying there was a price you could not pay. That's why God is going to pay it for you in the form of a sacrifice. When we talk about wrapping up the Old Testament and pointing to the New, the most important thing we can understand is we don't enter into relationship with God by paying a certain price. We enter into a relationship with God because the price has been paid, Are you here? The price has been paid. That's the first thing, the sacrifice. The second thing is this, covenant. They ask the question, how have you loved us? Malachi 1, 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? "'Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, "'yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, "'and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland "'and left his inheritance to the desert of jackals.'" Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins, but this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now, just to give you an idea, remember the book of Obadiah, and Obadiah talks about how the Edomites from Esau abandoned the covenant of God and started attacking God's people. Here's what God just said through Malachi you don't honor my covenant and they said well you say you've always loved us how have you loved us and he says by destroying your enemies by honoring every covenant that I've given you from the Abrahamic covenant to my covenant with Jacob to my covenant with David to my covenant with the children of Israel leaving slavery by honoring my covenants with you that's how I have loved you Ask another question, how have we wearied you? Where is the God of justice? This is kind of a continued dialogue that they're having. Malachi 2.17, God says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? This is actually the end of a dialogue that he has had on on marriage and divorce. Now, there are two famous passages in Malachi. One is about marriage and divorce. The other one is about tithing. Both of them point to something that's very, very important. So here is that question, Malachi 2, 10 through 16. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Did you hear what he just said? Why do you break covenant by being unfaithful? Why do you, if we've all been in a covenant together, do you continually break covenant by being unfaithful? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed In Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. So here's what they did they were leaving. When they were leaving their marriages, and they were marrying temple prostitutes and women who performed idolatrous acts of worship. They were marrying them, and they were performing those acts with them. So he's saying, you're leaving people, you're leaving your spouses for other women who are running wild, who are dancing around in temples as prostitutes, and you're marrying them. So he comes at them, and he says, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary by the Lord loves by marrying women who worship before in God. Verse 12, As for the man who does this, whomever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Now hear this. Another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you come to the temple, you come to church, you weep, you wail, you ask God to speak to you, you ask God for a word, you ask God to help you, you ask God to provide for you, but you go home on Monday and you're a jerk to your wife. Do you think I hear you? That's what he's saying to them. Saying you flood my altar with tears, but you're a terrible spouse. Do you think that's how it works? So remember, marriage throughout the Old Testament is a metaphor of the covenant between God and his people. Remember Hosea. Hosea marries Gomer. It's an illustration. It's a narrative, if you will. The New Testament picks this up. The Apostle Paul says what? Love your wives as Christ loved the church, in 2 Corinthians eleven two, he says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Revelation 19, 7-9 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb is come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear verse 9 then the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb from the introduction of jesus to our conduct representing jesus into our relationship to the return of jesus the metaphor is a wedding and the word from god to malachi is this if you're a terrible spouse don't think you're winning spiritually If you can't figure out, I I will tell you this, and I I meet people all the time whose marriages are in trouble, and most of the time, when this is a mess, it's because this is a mess. When, When I'm not walking with Jesus, I'm not able to be Jesus to my spouse. When I'm not walking with Jesus, I don't respond like Jesus when my wife frustrates me. When I'm not walking with Jesus, I'm not living like Jesus in my home. And the message from Malachi is this. You come and you weep at my altars, but you're a terrible spouse. How does this work? When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, what he is illustrating for us is the covenant of marriage should represent our covenant relationship with Jesus. In other words, the the way I can become the best spouse is becoming the best Christian. The way I can become the best husband is becoming the best follower of Jesus I can be. I, can, I, I will go this a step further. I'm sure I can probably tell you how your marriage is going if I ask you about your spiritual life. And I hear from you how your walk with Jesus is going, how your daily devotions are going, what you're praying about, what God's speaking to you, what you're looking to the Lord for, how he's been faithful to you. I bet you I can tell you how your marriage is. And coincidentally, flip the script, I, I bet you if I spent... Two hours with you as a couple and saw how you interacted and treated each other and loved each other or interrupted each other and got frustrated with each other and tore each other down and showed contempt to one another. I'm sure I can tell you by the way you treat each other, I can tell you how it's going spiritually. Because the relationships are connected, the relationships are one. The oneness I have with my spouse represents the oneness I share with Jesus, and when one of them is off, both of them are off. That's what Malachi is saying. He's saying when it comes to covenant, you're like a cheating spouse. When it comes to covenant, I can't bring you back to me. Here is the beautiful news, that by way of Jesus, God has restored covenant with us, So we can live in relationship with him. Malachi points to a God who was constantly frustrated with his people breaking covenant. The New Testament points to a God who restored covenant in Jesus. Do you see the difference? The reason we can live in fellowship with God today is because Jesus has restored what we have continually broken. I knew a couple who, um, they got married, they spent 10 years married together, they got divorced and then they remarried again two years later. It's a really wild story. Their first marriage, they were married for 10 years, had two kids, hated each other. They just could not get along, fought constantly, finally got divorced. After they got divorced, they spent two years working on their spiritual lives separately. And then they came back together after two years, got remarried. And I think they're in like the upper 20s years in in marriage, like combined total now. And they are are such an incredible couple. God has done such a redemptive work. They've been hope for couples who are struggling for a really long time. And I know Brian and I asked Brian, I said, "Um, tell me, what was the difference in the first one and the second one? And he said, the first one was a contract. He said, the second one was a covenant. And I said, that's interesting. I asked the obvious question. I said, what was the difference in contract and covenant? He said, when you have a contract, your goal of a contract is to protect your own interests. He said, when you have a covenant, you lay down your interests for the sake of the relationship. Whew. thought that was good. He said, the difference in a contract is I'm trying to protect myself. In a covenant, I'm saying, here it is. I lay it down in an altar. That's what Jesus did for us. How did the covenant with God get restored? How are we able as sinful people to be in covenant relationship with God? Because Jesus restored the covenant, okay? And then we land here. Let's finish with faithfulness. So they ask the question, how can we return when we haven't gone away? Malachi 3, 6 through 12. Here's what the Lord says. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, here it is, every single week. What is the message of the minor prophets? Return to me and I will return to you. Getting better, 11. Verse 8. Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask... How are we robbing you? Remember contextually, the temple has just been rebuilt. They've had to borrow supplies from neighboring countries. They've done the manual labor on their own. It's not as big as the first temple. They're really struggling as a nation to even get it together. The old priests are looking at the new temple and they're laughing at the destruction of it. They have no resources, no money, no structure, no governmental influence or anything like that. The temple's broke. And yet, what does God say? You are robbing me in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Here's the point of this passage. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines of your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Almighty. I love James Montgomery Boyce. He's a Old Testament scholar, probably the smartest Hebrew Old Testament scholar there is, and he talks about this passage, and he says, this is a great passage for stewardship, and I'm sure if you've heard that before, you've heard it preached on stewardship, and he said stewardship is great, but the point of the passage is this. God is just waiting to open up the floodgates of his faithfulness and his blessing on his people. It's not about us giving. It's about God's faithfulness waiting to shower us when we're faithful to him. That's the point of the passage. Now, I think there's great principle in it when it comes to tithing and giving, but the point of it is this. Our God is waiting with a floodgate of blessing for us with his faithfulness so that we can experience it when we walk in faithfulness with him. So, there's one more question. He says, what have we said about you? Malachi 3 13 through 18, he says, You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, What have we said against you? And you have said, It is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? We're on a time crunch. I'll summarize it for you. He finishes up by saying, You're just not faithful. You're not faithful. You complain about serving me. You complain about giving to me. You complain about all these things. You don't do any of these things. The one thing you lack is faithfulness. God is desperately begging his people to be faithful. And his promise is, you can test me in this all you want. I have a storehouse of blessing that I want to shower on you for your faithfulness if you'll just be faithful. Romans 5, 6 through 10 says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. It says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Malachi points us to a God who is constantly calling his people to faithfulness. The New Testament introduces us to a God who is so faithful he will remain faithful even if we are faithless. So my son... I'm at this really fun stage in parenting uh, because all the things that he likes are things that I like now. Like he's getting into sports, he loves to work out, he's into all these, he's into like, actually like fun movies to watch. I need to introduce him to Rambo, I'm thinking. That's, that's his next step, right? Um, but I'm just, he's a fan of all the things I'm a fan of. We're connecting in all these levels. And so he says to me the other day, he wants to go see the Mario movie. Now listen, like <laughs> these kids have no idea what Mario is about, right? Like, I grew up on the real Mario, like throwback, real version, Nintendo, Nintendo, not 64 and 128 and number five and whatever it may be now. I grew up on the real Mario, right? So my son comes to me and he's explaining to me, he's saying, dad, there's this movie out, it's called Mario, it's about this Italian guy. And I'm like, get out of here, dude. I know Mario. He's like, how do you know Mario? Like, man, you are, again, we've lost a generation, right? And so, we download the game on his Nintendo Switch and we're playing Mario. And I'm telling, like, he's like, okay, dad, you press this button to jump. And I'm like, what about this? And I'm jumping and I'm doing like the Super Slam, right? And I'm pressing down on the hills and I'm running down again. And he's like, Dad, how do you know all this? Like, I'm on the back of Yoshi eating all the cherries. And he's like, Dad, this is amazing, right? I'm like, yo, oh, man, it's pretty cool, huh, buddy, right? So we're playing Mario together and now this is our thing. We play Mario. And last night, I, I need to do sermon prep, right? And my son comes to me and he says, Dad, I said, yeah, bud. He said, do you, do you want to play Mario with me? And he's so cute. You know, he's such a sweet. And I was like, bud, I really got a sermon prep. And he was like, so do you not want to play with your son? <laughs> I'm like, I can't say no. Like, I can't say no to him. That's why you're getting John Rambo on Sunday morning, because I'm, I'm not sermon prepping. I'm playing Mario, right? Like, I'm like, all right, fine. So we sit down and we're playing Mario, and as we're playing Mario, we finish up, and it's late, and I'm like, I got to run through my outline one more time, and I'm sitting here, and I'm chewing on this, and I'm asking myself, why can't I say no to my son? And I'll tell you, I mean, the obvious reason is he's a really cute little boy, right? Really cute, really sweet boy, but here's the deeper reason for me. This is why I can't say no, because I see myself in him. Because I look at him and I see the seven-year-old Luke who ran his grandpa all over a farm. Who would it, my grandpa would never say no to me. He'd mow 180 acres, be soaked in sweat, worn out and tired. And be like, "Grandpa, you want to go shoot baskets?" And he'd say, "Okay, pal, let's go." And I, I look at him and I see the seven-year-old me. I look at him and I see the seven-year-old me in a house by myself, dad not around, wishing I had dad around to play video games with thinking to myself, it'd sure be nice to not be one player all the time. And so I look at him and I can't deny him, not because it's him, but because it's me. And there's a part of me in that young man, right? That's what Malachi wraps up the entire Old Testament pointing to, is when we could not be faithful, a God is coming who is so faithful that even when we are faithless, he cannot deny himself. When he sees you, he can't deny you. Why? Not because of you, or not because of what you've done, or what you haven't done, but because he sees himself in you. Because he looks at you and he sees the image of Christ that you bear. He sees the Savior that you proclaim. That's why you're a worthy sacrifice. That's why you can live in covenant with him and that's why you can be faithful, because he is in you, and when he sees you, he sees himself. That's how the Old Testament ends.